The following episode is a special presentation of Higher Journeys Radio, a tribute to Dr. Wayne Dyer. Best-selling author, therapist, and life coach Dr. Lori Nadell didn't just know Wayne Dyer, she was touched by him. In 2006, Dr. Lori found herself dealing with an unexpected shift, having been a regular columnist for the New York Times, when she was thrust into unknown waters. It was a meeting with Wayne Dyer and his signature words of wisdom that gave Dr. Lori the courage and inspiration to move on with a renewed sense of purpose and vigor. In this tribute to Dr. Dyer, she shares her experiences with him, her thoughts about him, and the bigger story that he spent so much of his time determined to impart to millions of people all over the world, the importance of shifting into the afternoon of your life. Wayne Dyer, you know, I affectionately called him the spiritual man with the churning hand, (laughs) always visually expressive, always passionate about sharing his wisdom and always available to those who crossed his path. Well, Dr. Lori Nadell is one who has crossed his path on several occasions. In fact, they were good friends. But each time their paths crossed, she was left with an indelible imprint of the man who can be aptly called the true father of self-help. We're fortunate today to have Lori with us to share her recollections and intimate memories of this beautiful soul, who sadly we lost just a short while ago at the end of August, a little over a week ago. And although we are sad and still somewhat shocked at this sudden loss, we go on to cherish not only his memory, but all that he left with us, all that we can use on our continued journey, as Wayne, I'm sure, continues on his. So, Lori, welcome to Higher Journeys Radio, and thank you so much for joining us on a rather short notice. Well, thank you so much for having me on the show. It's it's my pleasure, and although... Uh, bittersweet. Uh, I'm really looking forward, and I know that our audience as well are looking forward to some of your interactions with uh, Dr. Dyer. So, you know, you wrote a touching piece recently, I loved it, in the Huffington Post about your friend Wayne as a tribute to how he affected you and your journey. And the piece is called, I love this, Pastrami and Wisdom, written with so much wit and so touching. And in the open of your piece, Laurie, you talk about how in 2006, during a time when you were going through a transition of your own, Wayne's words of wisdom helped you understand how, and I'm going to quote, God sweeps the table clean so that you can get ready to do something else. So if you would give us a little backdrop to this story, this encounter in 2006, uh, we'd love to hear that. Uh, I had uh, actually interviewed Wayne uh, a couple of times. I had an internet radio show called uh, The Dr. Laurie Show Mm. on Genesis Communications Network. And uh, um, I'd also had a column, a religion column, in the New York Times called Long Island at Worship. And I'd done a story about uh, Wayne's protege, Immaculate Ilabagiza, who was a Rwandan refugee who had escaped the massacre by hiding out in a bathroom and she had written a book uh, about forgiveness and compassion and, uh, and her, ex- her mystical experiences while she was um, in hiding. Mm-hmm. And uh, she lived on Long Island, and uh, as part of the interview, I, I got to speak to uh, Wayne and do a telephone interview. And as we were talking and kind of sharing life experiences, uh, he invited me to have lunch with him when he was coming into New York, uh, I guess the next month. And um, as it happened, my, my brother, Eric, who is the, uh, the radio announcer for the Texas Rangers baseball team, was a huge fan of Wayne's, and he was going to be in town with the team on his birthday, which was May 16th. And so I asked Wayne if, uh, you know, would I, would I be able to bring my brother along? And he said, sure, you can bring him along. Uh, Wayne's birthday was on May 10th, hmm. so they were both Tauruses. And um, Wayne said... Yeah, sure, bring him along. And when we showed up at, uh, at this deli in Midtown Manhattan, uh, there was another brother-sister team there, also from Brooklyn, and that was uh, Curtis Sliwa, who was the founder of the Guardian Angels, and uh, which is a vigilante group uh, has been going for many, many years. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and his sister, Alita St. James, who was a uh, life coach and who had written a book and I think was, was uh, looking... Uh, for some advice from Wayne. 
And so we, we started talking about, you know, isn't that odd that, you know, interesting synchronicity that you would have two brother-sister uh, kind of teams or, mm-hmm. or duos uh, showing up at this delicatessen to have lunch with, uh, with Wayne Dyer. And uh, when he showed up, uh, you know, we kind of went around the table, and then the guys started talking baseball, and Alita and I were talking about um, kind of life and parenting. And then Wayne kind of came back and was asking me about my column. And what happened was the New York Times had decided to uh, cancel Long Island, New Jersey, Connecticut, and Westchester. All the Sunday sections were being canceled. And so... um, you know, when you get a column in the New York Times, and I started my journalism career in 1968, so to finally have a column in the New York Times was uh, kind of the pinnacle of my journalism career, and now it was just kind of being taken away, not because of my skill or lack of skill. Uh, it was just it was a business decision. And uh, I, I was, you know, not, not happy about it. I mean, I wasn't devastated, but... Uh, I was I was not pleased about it, and uh, and Wayne said something that that really you know kind of I've reminded of it uh, over time, which was he said well sometimes when we get comfortable, he said God uh, kind of wipes the table clean. He kind of like he strips off the tablecloth uh, because he wants you to get ready for something else, mm-hmm. and you know kind of said that you you know you you don't um, don't be surprised if you start to get too comfortable, you know if if, uh, if God wipes the table clean, mm, that's poignant. Mm. Very poignant, and it kind of it kind of took away, you know, kind of the I guess self recrimination. And well, maybe if I'd done this, and of course, the decision was completely out of my control and affected everybody who wrote for the section. It wasn't it wasn't a personal decision or an editorial decision that was directed at me. But I was really pleased that. Uh, he had told me something that that kind of gave me kind of more of a meta view or an overview. Yes. And um, it it kind of helped me to prepare spiritually for a lot of ups and downs that would be coming over the next um, six years or so. Sure. That's, that's, uh, I'm going to say it again, very poignant. And, you know, Laurie, some... Look, he spent so much of his life sharing this wisdom, often in metaphor with people. And, you know, I I think it takes a certain kind of ear to hear it and act on it. Uh, You like to think that whomever you're imparting whatever you can to, they're going to take your advice. And it doesn't happen for everybody, but you did. And I think that uh, that's a wonderful thing that goes to show you how uh, how closely you're, you're listening and aware and, and, and got it. You got that message. Well, you know, it was Wayne who used the phrase, the afternoon of your life, right? And you wrote about that in the article too, versus the morning of your life. And so I want to read a passage, a quote of his that you referred to in your HuffPost article, if I may. Uh, he says, quote, the afternoon of our lives represents the time when we begin to shift away from the ego and false self being the dominant force in our life. We begin a journey towards meaning. Now, the morning of our lives is really occupied by ambition, giving as much as you can, collecting as much stuff as you can get, impressing as many people as you can, preparing yourself for a job, saving your money, setting goals, pleasing everybody, doing the right thing, getting good grades in school. All this stuff that's revolved around the ego part of us really believes that who we are is what we get out of it and what we do and what other people think of us. That's basically the essence of the ego, end quote. And so this, of course, is a central theme, not only in your article, but in his wonderful film entitled The Shift, which I just had occasion to watch. I loved it. What does the afternoon of life mean to you, Laurie? And and how did you process this message when you heard it directly from Wayne? Well, actually, the phrase, you know, if you don't mind, and and Wayne had quoted uh, Carl Jung Mm. as the person who came up with the phrase, the afternoon of life, Ah, which mm. uh, I uh, I had heard before. Um, it's really referring to, you know, when you get into your 40s and uh, you're really looking at, for most people, the second half of life or, or for most people around the second half of life, a little more, a little bit less. And uh, the things that obsessed us, I think the things that drove us uh, early on in our life become less important and uh, we start to become more reflective about uh, the things that really matter to us. Mm-hmm. Values become more important as opposed to um, externals. 
um, if we've been very, uh, if you've been very driven or very kind of goal oriented, you know, sometimes you begin to reassess your goals or what kind of goals uh, are important to you. Uh, very often, people will you know have career changes. Um, I had a career change in my forties. Um, people will start to kind of look at um, you know what is my legacy? How do I want to be remembered? Mm-hmm. And uh, how do I want to live in a fulfilling way with the time I have left? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't. I wasn't aware that it was uh, Young that had coined that phrase. Yeah. Um, yeah, and well, you know, I was when I was watching the shift the other day. <clears throat> um, I, I'm sure you've seen the, the the film that Hay House did with Wayne Dyer, and in the very open of the the film, you see him getting up at three thirty in the morning. I wonder if he did that every, not every day, but most mornings. Got up at three thirty and was ready for a six thirty, I think, uh, interview shoot. But he gets up and he lights candles, and obviously he's going there, uh, sort of in solitude, to write one of his books. And he had a Carl Jung book on the table. I was wondering, because I, I think I have most of Jung's works. But yeah. yeah, I know that he followed Jung, among many other, of course, uh, um, Eastern philosophy, but in, in the area of psychology. So okay, yeah, just wanted to d- digress for a minute there. Well, you know, you had occasion to meet with him again, right, in 2009 that you mentioned. And I believe, was he diagnosed with cancer shortly after that? Uh, uh, he was diagnosed with cancer shortly after that. Yeah, yes. yeah. I, actually, I, I met with him a few times when he came to New York uh, yeah. uh, to do this uh, annual PBS special. He would yeah. do a fundraiser and kind of launch his new book. Uh, so I, I, I saw him several times, mm. and uh, we we kind of lost touch around uh, 2009, an ex- occasional exchange of notes or you know voicemail messages. But uh, he was diagnosed with cancer shortly after the interview that I did with him mm-hmm. in 2009. Yeah. And I believe you said that he spoke of his being aware of being in his afternoon of life. Yeah. Did you look at that in retrospect and think, hmm, I wonder if this is implicit of that, that he sort of knew on some level that, some, that God was going to wipe the table clean and give him an, another sort of scenario to work with? I, I think he he sensed that uh, that you know that that something you know literally internally was going on, mm-hmm. and whether it was um, you know the way he was feeling or whether um, you know something something was just telling him that um, that there were going to be some challenges up ahead. Uh, I think he was kind of aware, mm-hmm. but yeah. he did continue traveling, uh, not traveling as much, but he he did continue to. Uh, to do seminars, he, he continued to come to New York to do his PBS specials. He um, still gave seminars on those Hay House cruises, mm-hmm. and um, you know he he continued to be uh, you know f- prolific and uh, as, as an author and as a as a seminar leader sure. uh, up until very recently. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we well, you know again I, this man. Wayne Dyer struck me as someone who was extremely lucid and aware of his own journey, even if expressed in metaphor. And, you know, I don't want to harp on his hardships and ultimately his end-of-life scenario, uh, but I do want to get this in because I think it kind of speaks to what, what you and I have been talking about, his sort of feeling, his intuitive sense. Uh, he, uh, in a Facebook post he made uh, merely days before his passing, I think it was like August 27th, he said the following, I think this is like three days before he passed, he says, quote, I have a suit in my closet with the pocket cut out. It's a reminder to me that I won't be taking anything with me. The last one I wear won't need any pockets. <sighs> Lori, do you think he had some a sense on some level, even subconsciously, that he was about to make this transition? I'm sure that he knew. Um, I think people I think people do know that yes. he's going to denial. Mm-hmm. Um and certainly he would have had medical reports that would document that uh, he was no longer in remission. But um, I, I do need to share with you that Wayne Dyer did not have a computer. And uh, he, did, he, may have, he may have written something and asked somebody to post it for him. Or he may have had you know, um, an assistant who did all his mm-hmm. online work for him. But he himself wrote longhand and he refused to have email and he did not have a computer. Mm, that's interesting. We, it's it's interesting that you say that because going back to that movie, uh, the the shift where he's he's getting up three thirty in the morning, 
uh, he'd always say thank you, thank you, thank you. And then he sits down with a yellow pad and pen with the candles starting to write. And I'm like, I wonder if he really does that. Like, does he yeah. really write in longhand? Wow. Okay. That's right. He that, does. That's something to, to be said. Wow. Yeah. You know, he, he refused to have email. Yeah. He had a cell phone, but he refused to have email. Good for him. Well, you you and I offline, we just talked about that, right? I think there's yeah. something to be said for that. I uh, said for that. I think it's a well, it's a choice. I was I started to say a necessary evil, but it is a choice that we uh, bring the, this technology into our lives. But I have to tell you, I still, as a writer, I have to write with a pen and 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 pad. It it just I think it does something to the brain when we exercise those muscles. So I hear here to him for that. Well, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. definitely. You know, one little point I just want to make in terms of, you know, who knows? Did he have a sense of, that his transition was coming? And I agree with you. I think a lot of people do. Uh, uh, you know, we've seen interesting behaviors of people, sometimes in exuberance just prior, even if it's an accident, uh, that they'll, an enthusiasm. So on, something about the, the human spirit is celebrating that they're about to go so we don't know but you know i want to point out you know i just recently heard i think from the family actually um on the facebook page that the coroner's report was that he it was he was still there was no trace of leukemia in his body he died of a heart attack i don't mm. know if you heard that no yeah it's just interesting mm-hmm Yep, just came out. So, okay, we don't want to focus on that. That was his we time. To, yeah, it was so, his time. It was his yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's see. Yeah. Where do where do we go from here? What other stories can you tell us about about Wayne? Well, you know, I I wanted to mention that uh, I'm I'm actually launching a new um, it's an online platform called Mind Body Network and uh, mindbodynetwork.com. And uh, what we are is a, an integrated health and wellness community uh, for providers and also people who can uh, go for, uh, to look for articles, information, um, online courses, everything, yoga, nutrition, um, intuition development at some point, meditation, and uh, a lot of self-help uh, uh, information and programs and courses available. Mm -hmm. And um, if you go to Mind Body Network of your listeners, would go to mindbodynetwork.com, um, there, there should be a link there to sign up to get a special report. This is a free special report, which was an interview that I did with Dr. Dyer in 2007, um, which is just called uh, A Conversation with Dr. Wayne Dower about the, the Tao. That he had been reading the, uh, the Tao Te Ching, which was written 2,500 years ago by uh, Chinese master Lao Tse. Mm -hmm. And the Tao offers a way of, of living in a state of flow and gentleness that uh, really kind of took over Wayne's way of being. And after reading it, when he uh, turned 65, he, um, he gave away everything that he owned mm -hmm. and uh, moved. Or he sold. Well, he gave away and he sold everything that he owned. And uh, he, I guess he just took a, something, a backpack or a suitcase, and, uh, and he moved to Hawaii. Um, hmm. That's when he moved to Hawaii. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Uh, of course, you know when Wayne Dyer gives everything away and moves to Hawaii. You know, it's kind of like when Donald Trump goes bankrupt, he still gets to keep Atlantic City. You know, and Wayne still, you know, he didn't just show up and have to go to a hostel and scrounge for a place to stay. I mean, he had a very lovely, you know, very lovely place in in Hawaii that was very comfortable. So it's not that he you know, kind of took a vow of poverty or celibacy or whatever, but uh, he did give everything away and kind of went and, and started over mm -hmm. at the age of 65. And he said that, you know, that the Tao um, brought him to a place of peace uh, where he said, you know, when the Tao, uh, when, you, when you live the Tao, you become peace rather than talking about it. And he said that that was really a big turning point for him in the afternoon of his life. That is powerful. I had, I, obviously, I knew that he was a student of the Tao, but I didn't know it was that late in his life. That's merely a decade ago. Wow. Yeah. In fact, he's written, he wrote several books uh, about the Tao, but there's, uh, there's one, and I think it came out in 2007, 2008, called Living the Wisdom of the Tao, and, um, and, and then he, he did two or three other, and, and, and a couple of CDs with Tao meditations. Um, it, it really did shift him 
um, into a state of being at peace uh, with everything that happened in his life, including the cancer diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's had quite a few incarnations, was what I say, when people are in the afternoon of their life, incarnations within one life, having grown up as a foster child, I think, till he was 10, and then right. time in the military. I mean, so many different <clears throat> lives, I would say. So many different shifts that he has made. And, you know, I always got the sense, Laurie, that he was equally student as much as teacher. And and he took what he learned as he was learning it and really sort of churned it. You know how I, I said in the beginning, you know, the spiritual man with the churning hand. And you know what I'm talking about, right? He always expressed himself with his, uh, I don't know if it was his left or right hand, spinning outward, turning, yes. turning. I would always pick that up and I would notice, and you know, that is a mannerism that some people have that are very expressive. But you know what I got from that is as he was taking in learning, he was that spinning outward of that hand was his sharing it, wanting to share that energy with whomever he was in the, the, the vicinity of. Do you know what I mean? Yes, he was. Yes. He's very um, offering. His hand was always offering. Offering, that's right. I want people to look. I'm sure, you know, we're probably going to see even more expressions of him, uh, you know, the films, the the, the PBS specials, all sorts of interviews. You watch that hand. Watch the way that moves, everybody. I think it's amazing. That's no small thing. Well, you know, there's no doubt that he stood for a passion to see uh, a shift in the human species and our fundamental behavior and in our evolutionary trajectory. And, you know, you also mentioned in your piece, uh, your HuffPost piece, that uh, in which he cited a a theory. Again, I want to quote, uh, quote, his mission had been distilled into one word. This is you talking. Pi, which equals 3.1416%. By that, he meant that if he could reach 3.1416% of the population and influence their thinking, that shift would be sufficient to align a new consciousness among the rest of the population. A key principle was showing people not to be afraid of loss. How did that strike you? Now, before you answer that, you know, I've heard semblances of that before. I think Greg Braden has spoken to um, the square root of 1%. If that uh, portion of the population could be shifted, it could be enough to shift the entire population. I think Ken Wilbur has another calculation. So we're all kind of flirting with the same thing here. What what are your thoughts on, on pi? Well, honestly, I tend to be a little bit of a skeptic on those kinds of projections. Um, I, I, I personally think it's going to take a 50% or more shift in mm. order to significantly change anything. Um, but then I speak as somebody who's been working in journalism since 1968. So, yeah. um, you know, my, my overview of, of uh, a lot of the, the kind of huge archetypal forces that are at play right now um, yeah. are are tremendous and and violent and uh, dark and disturbing and we also have this big shift in consciousness where more people are um, emerging uh, in the afternoon of life or even in the morning of life uh, with a greater sense of uh, compassion and connection and responsibility so there there is um, you know there is a, a, a kind of stream of change that's that's uh, starting to happen but you know, it's it's kind of like pouring uh, a bottle of, you know, something colored red into the ocean, and then expecting the ocean to change color. Yeah. I mean, how much how much stuff do you have to pour into the ocean before it changes color? I mean, a lot. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. Fair enough. Well, would you? Fair enough on that, uh, Laurie. And you know, I what you're describing, I have uh, termed many times the dichotomy of consciousness. I have a chapter in my book, Conscious Musings, called the dichotomy of consciousness and the precipice of change, in which we're seeing both of these aspects of the human consciousness: the the ugliest of ugly, the greediest of greedy. You name it along with the more altruistic parts that are emerging as well. So there is sort of this dichotomy, and I, 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 I like to think that that is signifying a precipice of change. It, the change, again, we don't know uh, in what direction it's going to be. But so, so Wayne thought it was, you know, 3.1416. You know, Greg Braden has his calculations. Others have theirs. And you have yours. That's, that's a great analogy that you gave about, you know, t- putting just a small percent of you know, red water into the ocean, expecting it to turn. That's that's heavy. Well, a lot of well, a lot of my my work, you know, now I I work as a, in the field of trauma, 
mm-hmm. uh, particularly with, with people who have uh, survived uh, catastrophic events, uh, since September 11th's uh, attack on the World Trade Center or natural catastrophes like Hurricane Sandy or mm-hmm. have been victims of uh, crimes or assaults um, in, in, uh, in various parts of the world. And, uh, you know, it... The, the the amount of sorrow that is inflicted by uh, these kind of turbulent, violent forces is uh, it's so huge that sometimes it, it feels like you're trying to, you know, empty the ocean you know, one teaspoon at a time. Mm-hmm. You know, there there is a lot of grieving that has to be processed, uh, which very often people who are, um, you know, in this kind of emerging consciousness movement are in denial that, that there's any kind of emotional price to pay. I That's mean, a good point. The change, you know, it's kind of like the parting of the Red Sea. I mean, there's there's suffering that's involved uh, along the way uh, within within the process of change. Mm-hmm. And some of that suffering, you know, as, as, as we just see by watching the news, you know, if you watch the news uh, now, to me it's like watching the news from the 1960s. Mm-hmm. I mean, just... You know, to talk about the, you know, the racial upheaval in this country and all the sorrow that's been in, inflicted over the years by uh, injustice, and then you know, see Syrian refugees, you know, see millions of people, you know, kind of trying to find a place where they can, you know, get a, have a roof over their heads. Um, you know, the 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 turmoil that we're in right now. I think it it's a blessing because. Uh, Again, you know, like Wayne said, it kind of shakes up the status quo. And it's really, for most of us, not until we get really uncomfortable that we begin to make significant change. And I think that that's, that's part of what's happening. You know, that this, this is, uh, you know, kind of the, the turbulence is a catalyst. But it is not, I don't think you can really say, um, you know, 3% or 1%. I mean, I, I just think that that's... Um, mm. You know, that, uh, I think that that's a really nice metaphor for some kind of optimism. But the reality is, you know, there, there are um, survival issues that millions and millions and millions of people face every day that, um, that have to be addressed. And, and there are injustices that have to be imbalanced. And there are huge social forces that have to shift mm. along the way. And we can't pretend that that's not part of what has to happen for an overall consciousness shift to take place. Right. Look, I appreciate your candor on that, and I think it is a tough discussion that people have, and I agree that particularly in what we call the new consciousness movement, that we have to be careful because there can be a bit of denial by just not looking we think we're fixing it. And um, so I'm going to agree with you wholeheartedly. Let me ask you, and staying with Wayne, let's just be really candid with each other. You know, in this calculation, albeit perhaps a metaphor, maybe in some people's cases they don't think it is, do you think Wayne may have been in a, a little bit of denial about this reality? I mean, being really honest. I, I think that Wayne was aware of, um, you know, with tremendous compassion about the level of suffering in the world. But um, he also led a very privileged life, which, which he was aware of as well. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, when you're, um, when you're kind of a rock star... Um, and you're, you know, you're extremely wealthy, and you're famous, and you know, you you have a kind of halo around you. Um, you're not really, you know, kind of living on the same mm. world that most other people are. I mean, you don't have to worry about how you're going to pay your phone bill, for example, or you, you know, you're not you're not dealing with um, many of the same uh, struggles that most people have to deal with. So it's easy to kind of say, well, look at what I went through. You know, my father left and I was in foster care and, you know, now I love him and I forgive him. And, I, you know, it, I mean, it's wonderful that he got to that point of serenity and that, you know, he did a lot of work on himself to get there. At the same time, you know, you know and I know that not everybody is blessed with the same opportunities and with the same uh, good fortune that Wayne Dyer had, you know, along the way. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. So that you know, it, it's much easier to forgive when you're um, when you're kind of in a state of beatitude, you know, about life because you can pretty much do whatever it is, you know, you're, you're, you're graced with having whatever, you know, opportunities that you want to flower, mm-hmm. you know, will flourish for you. And that's, you know, that's not true for most people. <coughs> Excuse me, it's true for a lot of people, 
but it's, it's probably not true for the majority of people. And what Wayne tried to do is to get people to kind of shift their thinking so that you know, more and more people would believe that uh, creative change was possible for them, mm-hmm. which, is, which, is, which is a huge thing. But, you know, it happens one person at a time. That's right. And it, change happens slowly, not, not quickly. You know, it's, it's a journey. And uh, there, there are, even if you change your thinking, um, there's still no magic bullets. Agreed. You know, I mean, you still have to do the work. And sometimes, you know, no matter what you think, you know, life is not going to give you what you think or what you want all the time, which is, this is one of the, the big teachings of, of Buddhism, mm-hmm. which is that, you know, the source of all suffering is wanting. You know, it's what the ego wants. Mm-hmm. We, th- we think that, you know, if, if, if uh, well, if we could just get what we want, then we're going to be happy. But then you get what you want and you know, you want something else or you don't want it or it's not good enough or someone else has something that you would rather want. And um, you're, you're never, you know, as long as, as, long as you're, you're programming your mind to, um, you know, try to get what you want, you're still, you know, you're still kind of trapped on that wheel. Mm-hmm. Well, you're, you're trapped in the morning. That, right. You're trapped in the morning of your life, right? right. Still chasing that carrot. Sure. Whatever it is you think, you know, it's in, and so when you stop wanting... And of course, you know, if people are are suffering and they're they're um, they're struggling with survival issues, or they're dealing with addiction issues, or they have you know severe um, you know family issues, domestic abuse issues, um, or people have uh, have have to come have to have to live with tremendous courage and um, and resilience in order to survive daily life. Mm-hmm. And for many people, you know, the the idea that um, you know, you have to stop wanting is, it, it, it doesn't make sense because that's how people motivate themselves, you know, to kind of move forward. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of like one of those Chinese finger puzzles, you know, the, those kind of, they're, they're straw tubes and you put one finger in one end and one finger in the other end and the more you pull, the tighter the puzzle gets. So, you know, the more you're, you're kind of trapped in wanting, then, you know, the, that's where your attention is. And a lot of the New Age, New Thought movement, um, and I read a lot of stuff, you know, all the time, especially now for Mind Body Network. You know, this, this whole consciousness that um, you know, program your mind to get what you want, mm. uh, is not necessarily helpful in terms of um, guiding, helping people, or, or guiding people to understand that wanting something and visualizing it isn't necessarily going to lead to a fulfilling life and it's not always going to work that's right well i think there's so many more uh, components to that process of a manifestation and intention i do think that there is a non-physical component certainly but i think a lot of it has to do with the feeling component and you know something else that in it is i've been a student of, of metaphysics for most of my life really the the idea of want is a very very sort of fragile and nebulous thing because if you're in a state of want and you feel that there's another aspect of you that's on the other end trying to fulfill your state of being, it's going to keep you in a perpetual state of want. Do you know what I mean? So it's, I I always thought that, you know, getting what you want through fill in the blank was sort of a futile endeavor because the subconscious is saying, oh, you want to be in a state of want? I'll keep you there. And therefore you will never have the manifestation. Right. And that's a subtle and profound shift in thinking. I think what, what well, I, I, I don't know. I think everybody has to kind of take it their own way and have this sovereign journey is what I like to say. Um, and look, Laurie, you know, we live in a society that is predicated on what? You, right. You got this. Now, here's something else right. I want to give you. I, you know, right. so society has, in, or the powers that be, if you will, have really indoctrinated the masses into this state, perpetual state of want. Right. That's complex, and it takes some silence, I think, and some, some contemplation to really kind of, uh, you know, wade through that. There are no silver bullets. I absolutely agree with you. And I, and I respect what you've said about Wayne, and you're right, sure. You know, um, his, his wants may not have been on the material side, but I'm sure there were still, as I've said, I think he's still on a journey. I don't know that it ever ends, really. Um, well, so. I, I was um, interviewing a, a Native American uh, shaman last year, and he was saying that the uh, Lakota people believed that you know that life, our, our life is a seamless progression, and that yeah. this lifetime 
is not an independent lifetime, but what came before and what came next, what comes next, or is all part of this one life path. And I think that that's I think that's really true. Mm-hmm. We came we came from somewhere. We emerged from somewhere into this form and into this lifetime and incarnation. And when we cross over, uh, we will be in another form. Uh, but we will be continuing to uh, to learn and to and to work and to study and to grow. Uh, it, it will be a continuation of the path that we're on right here in, in this dimension. Mm-hmm. It's hard for people to get their arms around infinite, yes. never-ending. Alpha and Omega is what we're taught, that there is a beginning and there is an end. And yet, uh, I don't know, it, it seems like some of our greatest perennial wisdoms tell us exactly the opposite, that it is a constant emergence in different forms. So, well, here's another quote that that Wayne had uh, on his Facebook page, or whoever is keeping it up, or had been. It says, we are not our bodies, our our possessions, or our careers. Who we are is divine love, and that's infinite. And, you know, we've heard that so often from so many warriors of spiritual wisdom, a simple and profound message, we are love, period. You know, I'm going to stop there. First thing, do you do you feel that we are love? Do I feel that we we are love? We and and the universal generic, or or the, uh, that each independence that each individual soul is is uh, is love. Um, well, what I, do you mean by the we? We as you know, our essence individually and well collectively. I don't know. I don't know that I even feel comfortably saying. You know, people talk about love in in this context as not being an emotion, but literally a frequency, right? That it is, and it's hard. I suppose it's hard to understand because we always think of lo- of attaching emotion to love, being in love with somebody, etc. But love is being just the purest form of all that is. It's very new agey, I know. But this is what he said. That so so that's what I'm talking about. It and sort of a frequency. I, believe, I, I do believe that that at the core we you know we we are loving and we are loved, and I do think that there is a frequency, uh, just as there's a frequency of hate. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's a frequency of love. There's a frequency of connection. Um, you know, I think that you know the collective unconscious or. Uh, Wayne called it source, or you know, Dr. Larry Dossie calls it one mind. Mm-hmm. Right. There is a, a universal intelligence, if you will, or higher intelligence, and um, and love is one of the frequency bands that we one can of the tap into. Mm. That's yeah, that's something to think about. One of the frequency bands, and again, you know. Some in the spiritual movement say that it is the ultimate. You know, they're they're only well. They, they say that there are two things: love, and fear, and and everything else, including hatred, is sort of a derivative of fear. Really, so I don't know. I think it's all, you know, my favorite <laughs> answer when someone asks, asks a question these days is, I don't know. <laughs> I don't. I'm still trying to work it out myself, and I doubt I'll do it in this lifetime. Right. I always say that, that, you know, I'm a very slow and stubborn learner, and that's taken me thousands of lifetimes <laughs> to reach this point of ignorance. Oh, boy. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Well, I think if we keep contemplating, taking the, the, the words of wisdom with people like yourself included, and Wayne Dyer and Dr. Dossie, who I, whom I've also had occasion to work with, uh, let's just do that. Let's turn off that reality TV, guys. I don't think our audience does that too much, but... And, and start, there's so much more to be thinking about, and this is one of them, as well as, you know, those those issues of survival and, you know, the stuff that we're going through on a day-to-day that seems to be accelerating without question. I want to talk, I don't know if you want to get dive into this or not. Let's digress a little bit from Wayne and talk about it. I just learned that you did lose your home in Hurricane Sandy in 2012. The, that's a, a huge endurance of loss. How, how did you deal with that and what how did you deal with that loss and rebuilding emotionally as well as physically? well in in the in the time that it happened um it, it was a kind of a, a mystical experience for me hmm. i i had actually spent 10 years uh, between 1994 and 2004 i spent part of every year studying with shamans in different parts of south america and uh, particularly with a, a woman in Brazil who is considered like the Mother Teresa of Brazil. 
And in in Brazil, along the coast and, and throughout the coast of the southern hemisphere, um, you know, people speak and and talk to and revere the mother of the sea the way you know people inland um, and even here you know talk about Mother Earth or Pachamama. And uh, I've always had a very deep uh, reverence and a very deep connection for the the, the soul of the sea. Mm-hmm. Um, from the time I was a child, I, I grew up. Um, I grew up in Brooklyn. I was always uh, kind of biking or going down to the harbor and and uh, you know watching the boats and and always felt at home. Right when I was right at the edge of where the water meets the land, which in shamanic wisdom, the places where the elements intersect, it kind of those are those are sacred vortexes. Hmm. So something had kind of drawn me to that. Uh, from the time I was a child, so learning about uh, a, a very rich culture that goes back thousands of years, in which um, this is kind of like a, a sacred, um, there's a sacred element, there's a whole spiritual uh, tradition around honoring the the spiritual intelligence of the ocean, uh, was something that um, you know I. I I was really happy to find out that I was like not the only person in the world who felt like this. Mm-hmm. No, not I'm at all. The only person around here, but uh, there are millions of people like me somewhere in the southern hemisphere. Absolutely, sides of the Atlantic. So when the water came in, um, you know, and it, it it came in unexpectedly. The house had never flooded. Uh, it came in through a back wall, hmm. which was it came in from a body of water that was two hundred yards to the west as opposed to the closest body of water, which was 80 yards to the north. And the house flooded very quickly, and then, you know, it, it, it got up to about four, four and a half feet. Mm. And I was completely at peace. I mean, I, I got the cat up to the attic, a little crawl space, and my boyfriend at the time was uh, helping, and we, we put everything we could think of, um, you know, upstairs in the attic because the water was, was covering everything. And when it got to be about chest height, uh, we oh. crawled up the stairs and then kind of watched the water making its way up the stairs um, and until the, the tide peaked. And I remember at one point seeing that these waves of water just kind of pushing through my, my little cottage where I'd raised my kid. And it was kind of it was a healing refuge for hundreds of people over the years and watching it all be taken away. And basically it was destroyed the first half hour. Mm. And um, and I felt like I was being lifted up, and I was being shown um, the nature of impermanence. And I just looked at everything kind of just dissolving. I mean, literally dissolving the force of the, the waves and the salt water. And the couch started floating, and the refrigerator was knocked over. The giant refrigerator was floating, and the, the dryer was floating. I mean, these, these heavy appliances were floating. It was like watching the movie Titanic in your house. Sure, absolutely. So, so it was kind of awe-inspiring. This is felt like wow, that there is a force of that is so much greater than anything I could possibly understand. And what a miracle to be present mm-hmm. you know, and, and and to be present with this force, you know, at this moment, and and to bear witness to this, you know, amazing event. That um, it's just wiping out, you know, life. Life as I know it is just being eradicated, which it was um, in in a very short period of time. And then at one point, um, I I heard, I, I felt there was a a a, a spiritual uh, spiritual presence, which I I felt to be the mother of the sea. And clearly, she had decided it was time to pay a visit, and. Uh, so I've, I felt I felt that she was present, but there there was an, an entity or uh, a consciousness that was present that spoke to me, and said, um, "Well, just as we are pushing out the walls of your house, uh, the water is pushing out the walls around your heart, and mm. you, and and you no longer need to have the construct of this of this cottage around you." Because you will carry the peace and magic from here wherever you go, and that's what I was given um, at the height of the storm. Wow! Um, you you have a proclivity, Lori. I can tell, and I think you know this, to listen 
to listen to these subtle messages that I think still so many people are so preoccupied that they never hear those synchronicities, those intuitions, the voice that's silent and loud at the same time. So I, I didn't know what how you were going to describe when you said it was a, a, a what did you call it? A, well, obviously a mystical experience, but an incredibly metaphysical experience in the midst of this emergency. That is really something. Have you documented this uh, in writing? Have you told this? Yes, story? actually, I've got a couple of pieces uh, on my website that I wrote about for the Huffington Post, uh, and I've been working on a on a book proposal uh, for a while. Um, it's gone through several revisions, but uh, it's it's kind of in process. But the the hard part actually was not you know the, the storm or or the loss, and the hard part was afterwards. Um, and uh, the hard part was was dealing with the first the the violence of what the destruction you know had done. The the town sewer pump had broken during the storm surge, and so when the tide uh, went out. Um, every everybody um, on this island, and for the two two or three towns around, um, the into, the entire interior of everybody's home were toxic and contaminated, mm. raw sewage. Uh, yeah. There was no water, and um, I had had a, a, a series of dreams that started. The, the storm was on October 29th in 2012, mm-hmm. and um, around May June of 2012, I'd had a dream, and my father, who had died in 1989, appeared in the dream. And he said to me, um, Laura, you need to buy water because there's going to be an emergency and you're going to need water. And I said in the dream, I said, okay, Dad, thanks. And then I went to the store and, you know, I bought, if I remember it, a gallon of water here, a gallon of water there. And I had like three gallons of water. And then around July 4th, just after July 4th, my favorite uncle, uh, who had died like a year later, he showed up in a dream and he said, you know, Laura, you're not taking this seriously. (laughs) We really need you to buy more water. Something's going to happen, and you're going to need to have extra water. So, so really, um, pay attention. So I said, all right, thank you, Uncle Nick. And I went out, and I bought a few more gallons of water. And then around Labor Day, my father showed up again in a dream. This time, he was wearing his lab coat. He'd been a dentist, and he was very stern. And he was really angry at me, and he said, Lori, you're, you're not taking us seriously. You know, this is the second time I've come back. And there's going to be an emergency, and you're going to have to have drinking water. You have to have water. You must go out and buy water. You have you have to you have to listen, and you have you have to go get water. So, um, I told my boyfriend, and we started bringing water in, and I had like 14 gallons of water and cases of water, and um, a lot of it was actually up in the attic, and so it was usable. And when the uh, tide went out, and everybody's the water supply was completely contaminated. Uh, the Red Cross was nowhere to be seen for a few days, and there was literally no water. And I was able to give people water, which was oh, so. It wasn't just for you; it was for the people. Right. Isn't that something? Well, and you hear these stories. You know, you and I both, as in, in, in this field, as writers and as experiencers, and I, I don't know about you, but I never cease to be amazed. These were clear, as uh, Dr. Larry Dossie so lucidly. Uh, calls them, among other things, presentiments. I think that's actually uh, Dr. Jean Radin's phrase, but precognitions, right. uh, you know, that uh, I tend to have quite frequently. But it never, how did you feel? I mean, you know, you had to know, you obviously knew something was on the horizon here. But when Hurricane Sandy hit, or you had a little bit of time to reflect, I'm sure your mind went back to those dreams, right? How, how did you react? In, or, I mean, did you say, wow, this is really... That was that was well, a, that was a I, dream. That was a message, obviously. It, it, interesting that there is a, f- a, a, a feeling that that um, that I can pick up that other people can, many people can pick up. Animals pick it up. Oh yes, and it, it's kind of it's it's a it's a shift in the energy field around us. Or yes. Some people call it the the matrix, and you know, in Star Wars they called it the Force. But there there's like a there's like a shift in the force, and people feel it. Mm-hmm. And people were coming to me in the spring of 2012 saying, you know, something really big is going to happen. Something really bad is going to happen. It feels like it did before, the summer before September 11th, when a lot of people were um, having a sense of dread. And they, they, there was the, this, this, it was in the collective unconscious that something huge was about to happen. And, mm-hmm. and I'd 
neighbors and people were coming in and saying, you know, I don't know what's wrong with me. I wake up in the morning. I have knots in my stomach. I feel like um, I, I haven't felt this way since the summer before September 11th. You know, is there something wrong with me? And I'd say, no, it, something's coming, and mm-hmm. we're feeling it. Absolutely. And we're all feeling it. Yeah. I, I think, yeah. I think that, some people... clear mm-hmm. that something you know, we didn't know what and of course our, as New Yorkers our first thought was you know there's some kind of terrorist attack I don't think anybody thought in terms of a, you know, of a, of a natural catastrophe that would affect a million people on a thousand miles of coastline but um, it, 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 on the in the level of the collective unconscious it was the warnings were coming through very clearly that uh, something major was going to happen and that it was going to be uh, really, that the ripple effect is still um, left many people uh, unable to get back in their homes. They they didn't receive assistance that they needed to rebuild. Um, people have gone bankrupt. People have uh, uh, the marriages are starting to fall apart because mm-hmm. of the strain of, of debt and uh, you know overexposure financially. Um, and people are people, and I, have, I run two support groups in my community, and uh, people are very anxious that uh, what if there's another hurricane, and even if it's not four and a half feet of water, um, still even three inches of water or five inches of water, um, you're going to have to go through the same process of rebuilding and fighting with insurance companies and dealing with the you know dealing with all the institutions that are supposed to protect us, but which um, actually do nothing to protect us when a catastrophe strikes. Yeah, yeah, yep. Well, you know, we're winding down. We only have a few minutes left, but I want to go back. This is still, again, because you don't continue to hear it in the headlines. It's sort of out of sight, out of mind for people that aren't uh, intimately connected to it. But going back to this sort of precognition, this collective precognition that uh, we are aware of, that, uh, you know, many are aware that these things happen. You, there, I have heard record amounts of stories, every version of uh, precognitive hunch prior to 9-11 and, and with other things. Um, including, by the way, I want to wind down with Wayne a little bit. Um, you know, right around the time that Wayne passed, I wasn't feeling so great. I tend to be, I don't know, maybe even hypersensitive. I think some people can be even a little bit more <clears throat> attuned with environment. And it, it's often t- difficult to delineate what, if it's an individual situation or a collective situation. Um, but right around... There, right around the time of Wayne's loss and even about a week or so before. In fact, the day that, if you recall, the, the reporter and cameraman from Virginia were uh, shot on, right. quote, quote, live TV, um, I had a, a crisis with my cat. I, it sounds like we're both cat lovers, cat owners. Oh, me too. Yeah. yeah. My cat had a, a urinary blockage, unbeknownst to us. We didn't even know there was such a thing. was fine on Tuesday, on Wednesday all hell broke loose and we had to rush him into emergency surgery or else that was it. He's still in a cage right now recuperating. Oh. But I got to tell you, I'm, I want to wind this back to, you know, that happened the day of the Virginia shooting. You know, we've been in, I my stomach has been in knots for the last week or so uh, dealing with this as well as some other things. Wayne passes away. And, you know, I still feel, I still feel like there's something out of kilter right now. How do you Oh, I agree with you. I, I like right now. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I do agree with you. There's there's something on the horizon, and it's unsettling. Whatever it is, have other people been coming to you at, at yes, all? Yes, yeah. Within yeah. what the last week, too. Well, it's just people feeling, you know, like like again, this kind of um, unsettled feeling, like you know, something is something is around the corner now. As I said in New York, you know, we, we every year around the anniversary yeah. of September 11th. Um, people, you know, people are re-traumatized with, with, uh, you know, sights and images and, um, you know, the footage gets replayed and um, so, you know, some of the unsettledness is, is just kind of the, you know, the anniversary triggers of, of yeah. a traumatic event. But yes. there is a feeling that, that there is something, you know, kind of unsettled kind of on the horizon. Um, possibly, you know, possibly something major because the the economy, you know, could could become very volatile in the next few months. It's already started, mm-hmm. you know, to uh, to get into like major uh, volatility, and there's there's always a fear that you know that there could be some kind of a you know some kind of an economic uh, or financial recession or correction or whatever they call it. 
So some of it, you know, is 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 obviously geared around that. Um, I I don't know, you know, what it is, but there is something that's unsettled. And it's interesting you mentioned, you know, what you felt before Wayne died. That the the day that Wayne died, I was driving my daughter and son-in-law to the train, and we stopped at a traffic light, and suddenly. I just felt that there was like this dropout. It, it, it got very, 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 very quiet, which is what I used to feel in the newsroom. It would get really quiet. And then within 48 hours, there would be some like major, huge, huge, huge news event that would happen. But there was always a period where, where literally the phones would stop ringing and the teletypes would slow down and you know, everything would just kind of like somebody hit the pause button mm-hmm. and you could practically taste it. And that's what I experienced at that traffic light. And I said to uh, my daughter and my son-in-law, I said, you know, it's, it's too quiet. And they said, what do you mean it's too quiet? And I explained it to them, and because my daughter rolled her eyes and said, oh, yeah, right, Mom. And I said, no, I said, it means that there, there is going to be a big news story in, within the next 48 hours. Hmm. I said, that's what it always, that I always feel it. I said, other people feel it. Um, people in the business feel it, or they don't talk about it that much, and and you know there there will be a big story, and then by by that evening I learned that Wayne died, and that certainly was a big story to millions of people, and to me on a personal level as well. Sure. And uh, isn't it amazing how and, and we go back to this uh, Dr. Jossie's idea of this one mind. There have been so many different ways it's been described, but this continuum of consciousness that we are tethered to everything that is sort of cropped up in this conversation which has been fabulous uh, including a tribute to Wayne has intimated that we are so much more than our bodies right just we are not right. our bodies our possessions or our careers who we are right. is divine Absolutely. love you can call it divine love divine consciousness right not just Wayne or you or me or some swami over here but every single person it is our, it's our, I started to say birthright. It's even before our birth, obviously. So well, I, think it, I think it's part of what we're here to experience. Mm-hmm. And it's, I sometimes use the term spiritual DNA. And yes. as in the last book that I uh, wrote with, uh, with Jim Baird, it's called Happiness Genes, Unlocking the Positive Potential Within Your DNA. Um, I talked about what I call spiritual DNA, you know, and sometimes we, we have a, the soul has a blueprint for what we're meant to experience in this lifetime, and each of these experiences, I think, is supposed to kind of strip away, if you will, a layer of, of denial or a layer of mask, and so we, we become closer and closer to resonating with that um, higher wavelength, if you will. Mm, well said. Perfect way to close this. Well, before we, we sign off, and by the way, we're going to sign off, but I don't want you to hang up because I want to have a proper goodbye offline. <laughs> I always forget to tell my guests this. Tell us where we can find more of your great work. You mentioned the website before. Please mention it again, and we'll make sure to list it. Well, first, I, I hope that you'll mention mindbodynetwork.com. Absolutely. And uh, people will be able to sign up uh, to receive our news. Um, you, as a practitioner and an internet radio host and author, hope that you'll join our community. There, there's no charge to join, and you get your own web page and can uh, post your own blogs and articles and information. Um, and if you're interested, if you have any online courses, we'd be happy to consider having them on mbn.com. Excellent. And uh, there will be a free special report, a conversation with Dr. Wayne Dyer about the Dow Excellent. that you can request for signing up. Um, my work can be found on laurienadel.com, and you can contact me through the website, which is laurie, L-A-U-R-I-E-N-A-D-E-L.com. Excellent. Oh, boy, that's fantastic. And I'm so happy to thank you, by the way, for the invitation uh, with the the form that you've gotten. And by the way, audience, uh, Lori and I, although we have never met in person, I hope that we get to one day are a part of another beautiful group. That's how we know uh, each other uh, through a a group that is led by uh, Dr. Uh, Jeffrey Mishlove. So, What a pleasure, even under these circumstances. And, um, you know, we had a little tough time getting started. And I said to Lori, I wonder if Wayne is like, okay, I've had enough people talking about me. I'm going to just throw a little wrench into your action here Uh because enough is enough. You wonder if it was Wayne. So cheers to you, Dr. Wayne Dyer. Cheers to you, Lori Nadell, for all you do and for sharing your recollections and your incredible insight, literally. Thank you so much. 
Just as we are pushing out the walls of your home, the water is pushing out the walls around your heart. This message that came to Dr. Lori in the midst of losing her home to Hurricane Sandy, she says brought a sense of calm, not after the storm, but right in the middle of it. These are sentiments that I'm sure Wayne Dyer would have agreed with. As he so elegantly put it, God sweeps the table clean so that you can get ready to do something else. And now he too has moved on to do something else as he journeys past the afternoon of his life and swims into new waters. On behalf of Dr. Lori Nadell and all of the people along the way that you've touched, we salute you, Dr. Dyer, for all that you've left us with. May you soar to new heights on your continued journey.